Hello and welcome to the CigarCast, your weekly one-stop shop for all things cigar-related, including industry news, reviews, and everything in between. We're recording live from Mission Cigars and Social here in Spring Hill, Tennessee. I'm one of your hosts, Trey Devin. I'm joined as I am every week by Mr. Shane Reeves. That's two weeks in a row where I didn't have an intro joke for you. I'm disappointed in myself. Well, okay, in behind the curtain, breaking the fourth wall, we're doing two shows in the same night. Well, I... Because, yes. you know, you know how it is, getting on our guests' busy, busy schedule. That's right. At all. It's, it's actually midnight here. At all. We've shut it the shop like down. It feels like it, man. <laughs> at all. Getting dark earlier does that to us. It does. The other night, I was finishing up dinner, and I thought for sure it had to be 9 o'clock. No, it was 6. Yeah. It just it blows my mind when it driving here and it's dark. It's just aggravating. But So, I've said it before about guests. I haven't said it in a long time. There's people that you come into the cigar shop and it makes you happy that they're there. And there are others who make you happy when they leave. No, yeah, there's others that are happy when you leave. I but, know which category I am in. Don't <laughs> sugarcoat it. But our guest tonight's Derek Purvis. And we had Derek on a previous episode and talked about some YouTube shows and some stuff. And Derek, what do you call yourself? Producer, director, you want to entrepreneur? Know yeah. Uh, well, the truth is I call myself a husband and a father when people ask me what I do. And that's for real. But That's the just, right answer. Yeah. Uh, but then if we're just talking about work, um, I'm actually known as a, an executive producer, financer of feature films, sort of where I made my living. Uh, but recently got into the creative side, now doing more uh, writing and directing. This is my fourth feature film. I'm just coming off of wrapping uh, two nights ago. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to have Derek on is I got to see all of this process. I'm Mr. Mr. Purvis's executive scooter wrangler. Okay. Which I, I think is a great title. I, if I don't see that in the credits, I'm going to be really, really disappointed. <laughs> executive scooter wrangler for Mr. Purvis. Okay. <laughs> and but seeing all the stuff that goes into movies because I'm like everybody else, I kind of thought that there was three or four guys working really, really hard. And everybody else was sitting in their trailer waiting on their queue? No, you've got that backwards. <laughs> but as a financer, I could tell you, I do like your model. We should work that out a little bit. It's See if probably, we can flesh that out? Yeah, if we could go from 120 people standing around while four people work to four people working really hard, I'm in. Four people standing around while 120 work? Yes, that'd that's probably right. That would make the, the set go a little faster. I, I believe it would, yes. And uh, so the movie is Savage Land. Yes, PG-13 action adventure about Davy Crockett. Not a historical uh, uh, biography by any stretch. It's historical fiction. It's a fun uh, sort of uh, exploration uh, in a two-week period of Davy Crockett's life. Um, Has historical themes that are accurate, historical characters, uh, but a fun sort of action-adventure, swashbuckling timeline that uh, I think 12-year-olds or the dads can watch together and have a ton of fun. Awesome. Well, I've got a, a lot of questions, but I want to get to our cigars first. Yeah, I guess we better get our cigars oh, lit goodness. first. That's why I'm here, actually. The only reason is came so, with a cigar. Yeah, usually we buy the cigar, but you already <laughs> had one in your hand, so I just I just went with it. Yeah. Seemed a shame for you to put it down. So you're smoking the Yao Connecticut from El Septimo Cigars. And El Septimo, they've made a huge push in the market this year. When we were at the show, they had the giant booth. They had the... $3 million lighters and the gold humidors and the 100-year-old cognac. They really have tried. I really feel like El Septimo's trying to get a piece of Davidoff's action. Gotcha. I will. I do have to defend myself a little, or I feel like I have to defend myself a little, which is I'm not usually in a Connecticut guy, which is fine. I like a little 
something with a little more like a Maduro or a little heavier. Um, but I will say that this cigar, uh, maybe it's the gauge that it is or something, but it definitely feels a little bit heavier than like a typical Connecticut I've had. Hmm. And it's and it's still very smooth. And I don't spicy or peppery is used a lot, but there's a very mild hint of something that gives it a little kick. I don't know. It's yeah. it's kind of cool. And I, I bought these at the recommendation of the store owner here. So I bought one of each of their kind, and I happened to be smoking what turned out to be the Connecticut. Well, I smoked about two inches of one of those at the um, show. And it was on a day when I had already smoked twenty up, two inches of 20 other cigars. Yeah. So I probably owe it to El Septimo to sit down and smoke that cigar and actually spend some time with it. But the price point of that cigar puts me off of it. What you does know, it retail for? Uh, twenty three, twenty four. It's on up there. All right. Yeah, about that region. It's, it's, it's this in Padron one here money. was twenty six ninety five. And now your favorite cigar, of course, is the Pappy. Have you smoked the new Blackened from Drew Estate, the other whiskey cigar? No, but I would be down for like doing that as soon as we're done with this. I'm, I'm interested for you to try that and give me a report on what you think of it. I will, I'll I'll spare you my opinion of it till after you've smoked it. But I smoked it on the show last week, so everybody listening. Right, sorry, knows what my it. opinion was. Well, I was going to ask you to describe it to me, but I think <laughs> yeah, we'll let we've already gone down that road. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll taste it and then maybe give you my description. What are you smoking, Trey? Um, I went into the humidor, and so last week when we were recording, or, or two weeks ago as you're listening to this, we talked a lot about how Perdomo is just kind of the gold standard for continuity and consistency. And I haven't smoked one in a long time. And so this is the 10th anniversary Sun Grown. So the 10th anniversary line is where the champagne that everyone's familiar with comes from. But this is the one that is, you know, they're all Nicaraguan Puros, but this has that Sun Grown wrapper, which I think Perdomo does a Sun Grown wrapper better than anybody else in the industry, bar none. The La Polina is pretty stout. That's pretty stout competition. Their Sun Grown wrapper is something else. It is, but I think it's held up by the rest of the blend, whereas I feel like they do more in the... The Perdomo does more with the wrapper for the wrapper's sake, if that makes sense. Well, and I need to make a statement to all of my cigar-smoking brethren. Just because I don't say everything I say positive about a cigar doesn't mean I don't like it. (laughs) I all the time have people say, oh, yeah, you don't like Perdomo. I like Perdomo. I just never am knocked off. My socks are never knocked off by Perdomo. I want a cigar that's going to knock my socks off. And Perdomo's always going to be good. It's always going to be consistent. Their business model is flawless, the best business model in the industry. So it's not that I don't like Perdomo. I just don't smoke a lot of them because I'm always seeking that that more exciting stick. See, I disagree. I don't think every cigar has to knock my socks off. You know, it's that way with, with everything. My cord is stuck on my foot. <laughs> I couldn't concentrate. The I, You know, it's the same way with, with TV shows or movies. I, there is a place... For things that are just good. You know, every episode of The Sopranos doesn't have to leave me sweaty on the edge of my seat. Sometimes there's there's a place for something that just gets you where you're going. And that's what I like about Perdomo is the fact that I, I'm not expecting this. You know, you mentioned earlier that we're, we're recording two shows back to back. So I've already had a really good cigar tonight. I don't 
I don't think it would be advantageous for me to try and one up that Pinalero from last week. Speaking of which, what I'll be smoking this week is the Pinalero from AJ Fernandez. <laughs> this, um, I actually had to sit here for an hour and watch Trey smoke the cigar I wanted to smoke. Having just finished it, I can understand what a what turmoil that would have been for you, especially knowing how you felt about the cigar that you were smoking. Yeah, I was reviewing a new cigar for the shop, and I I felt I owed it to the to the shop to do it on a clean palate, not for it to be my second cigar in a row. So I had to sit here and be tortured by, for a solid hour by Trey smoking the cigar I wished I was smoking. I had I had cigar envy all over me. I always would have something to say about that. I just wanted to lob in before we get too far away about um, Perdomo. I think there's probably something valuable to be said about having that, like you said, the reliability. Some, you know, sometimes you just want to sink into the leather chair, take an exhale, smoke something familiar that you like, that you know is going to be put you in that right mood, whether it's to relax or to, you know, take your mind off or whatever that might be. So I think there's something to having a brand that that constantly delivers that for you, which is cool. No but, doubt. And then I was going to ask, do you have any success finding uh, often cigars that knock your socks off? How what now? Do you have success often uh, in finding cigars that knock your socks off? Yeah, yeah. There's quite a few in there that I find that, you know, most of La Polina stuff, the German-engineered stuff knocked my yeah. socks off. But did that knock your socks off the first time you smoked it or every time you smoke it? Good question. Every time. Really? Really. Every time I smoke it, I know that there's something different there. Okay. I know that there's something different going on, and there's a nuance I'm probably going to catch. You must go through a lot of socks. Oh, I do. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and all my my wife has been... By the way, my wife is trying to steal my 100% alpaca wool socks. I made the mistake <laughs> of letting her wear them. And Especially well, in the winter. That was a yeah. that was a bad move. And I love if you if you don't have a hundred percent alpaca socks, don't get an alpaca wool blend. That's a crime against nature. But get <laughs> a nice hundred percent alpaca sock. They're lighter, they wick moisture better, and they're warmer than any sock you'll ever wear. And then get a cigar that knocks them off. Then get a cigar that but when it knocks them off, don't have your wife there because <laughs> okay. she'll pick them up, put them on, and then <laughs> See, you'll be so out many of good pair life lessons on this podcast. I, I really should listen more. Yeah. <laughs> And if you want the full experience, make sure there's Peruvian tobacco in the in the cigar. That way, it, that way you get the whole the whole, whole experience. Match. Yeah. But yeah, my my success rate on cigars knocking my socks off is pretty high. Yeah. At all, but you take the risk. You end up with some that just not only don't knock your socks off, but are a pain to smoke. And then your podcast partner smokes the cigar you really wish you were smoking <laughs> during that. But the rest of us do enjoy the face you make when it's not up to your par. I've seen you smoke a cigar, too, that... <laughs> yes. <laughs> watching you go through the torment of finish... Because you have to begrudgingly finish it, especially if it's a gift or something, which I did see you recently endure. <laughs> yes, Derek sat next to me when Tennessee was getting a shellacking by oh, South Carolina. We talked about that on the show a couple weeks ago. And on top of it, I was having to smoke a bad cigar that a really good person had went out of his way to get for me. Yeah. So that was, that was just kind of the double, <laughs> the double standard abuse on my part of it. But moving forward. All right, let's hit an article before we talk to Derek about movies. Well, so last time we had Derek on the show, we were talking about a, a YouTube show that you were spinning up. Yeah. Um, called Man Talk, I believe. Yeah? Yep. Yeah. Yep. And so this article comes from The Art of Manliness. So I figured you'd have a great 
you know, kind of perspective on the matter, and this is why every man should have three signature dishes. Now, I mean, right there in the title of the article, you have everything you need to know. And so I cook 99.98% of all meals that are eaten in my household. I love to cook. It's not just a chore. I, I really enjoy the process of what this article is talking about, which is not just grabbing a recipe and following it. I can't tell you the last time I cooked a meal other than something that was baking, which is chemistry, which you have to follow. But I haven't followed a recipe in five, seven, eight years. Do you ever hit it right the first time? Yes. Do you ever hit it right the first time and say, okay, it's not going to get any better than this, or do you always have to monkey with it? So, well, so here's here's the problem, and this is, uh, I can't call it a New Year's resolution because I've been working on this for probably about six months. Something I need to get better at is keeping track of what I'm doing because inevitably what will happen is I'll get it right. And then I can't get it right again. You forget the recipe. That yeah, you did I, the I last forget time. the recipe. The They're, nuance. Yeah, you know. So we're big fans of Indian cuisine in my house, and now I recognize that any of the curries or Indian style recipes that I'm going to make are not going to be authentic, but they're going to be you know that flavor palette. And the other night, this was two weeks ago or so, we so. A little background, we just found out that my son is allergic to beef. So we've been really chicken heavy in my house while we're trying to kind of figure out how we can substitute for some of our you know, staple dishes that, w- that normally would have beef in them. And so I'm like, okay, well, I'll make curry for dinner tonight, but we didn't have the yogurt that I normally make the sauce with. So I'm like, I've been making this dish long enough. I know what the flavors need to be. I'm going to, I'm just going to play around. And I changed the preparation method that I used and I just kind of grabbed the spices that I knew would work in God only knows what quantities and not only was it one of the better meals I've ever made but my son who we thought was anti-meat but it turns out he was it was just so often not making him feel well was doing the happy dance oh, wow. as he was shoveling handfuls into his mouth. Okay, and that good. just made me feel awesome. Yeah. Well, Indian food, um, I have, I, I do a little, I used to do a lot more of the cooking and then I became very busy. Um, but the stuff I like to cook is more of the Italian, mm-hmm. kind of like being Italian. And so, uh, like Indian though, it's very dependent on the base. Yes. So, if you build a base that has a flavor profile, then you can put the larger ingredients into it and change it into two or three or four or five different dishes all from that same base, but have that familiar taste that you like. Yeah, was it, is it Jim Gaffigan that has the bit about Mexican food it all being nothing, but it's a tortilla with cheese, meat, and vegetables? I'm, I'm sure Jim Gaffigan, all of his bits are about food. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. And they're all fun to watch. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Variety is overrated. Yeah. But first, before we get into the recipes, because I despise Indian food, I love Italian food, but before we get into all of that, why should a man have a signature dish? What is the, what is the opinion of a man having a signature dish? Why is that important? Cooking for someone is a way to hug them if you don't like physical touch. My, if, if you want to know if, whether or not I like you, 
it's whether or not I cook for you. I absolutely, my favorite thing to do for another human that I respect, love, enjoy, whatever, is to cook for them. I don't know how to take the fact that you've never cooked anything for me. I've never cooked anything for Shane either. He's never cooked for me either. Okay, well then. So the secret's out. Don't feel bad. (laughs) You guys are going to have to come over to Dixon. That's the problem. Yeah. So the signature dish, what's great about it is eventually somebody will ask you for it. Right. And nothing feels better than somebody saying, oh, yeah, we're putting together a deal. Oh, you've got to bring your buffalo chicken dip. Mm-hmm. You've got to bring your, you know, you, are you going to handle the meat? Are you going to handle the barbecue? And, and there's a whole aspect of masculinity associated with how well you're able to operate a grill and a smoker in tandem to make meat. I also think, based upon the complexity of whatever that meal happens to be, it becomes a, an observation or a, a, an exemplification of how well you manage stress. So there's a funny story that my wife likes to tell. So we were early, early in our dating. We'd pretty much only ever gone out to eat on dates at this point. And I, it got to that point where I, I was running up a credit card bill like you wouldn't believe. And <laughs> I said, I'm going to cook for you. And I grab a recipe that I had never tried before. And it was out of a Gordon Ramsay cookbook, which who's, who I do use as like a base for recipes oftentimes. And I, she, she gets to the door and all she can hear through the other side is shit, shit, shit. And a number <laughs> of other words that we've decided we're not going to say on the air. And she laughs because she actually took a minute and was debating whether or not to walk through the door because she knew something bad was happening on the other side. More chloroform, more chloroform. (laughs) (laughs) But I think, especially, you know, not talking about a signature dish, but kind of cooking in general has a lot to do, you know, we just came came off of Thanksgiving where, you know, it's it's a pinnacle in making sure that 17 different things are all ready at the same time. And I think there's a lot of... It's a demonstration of how well you manage stress as to how well you can cook as well. So one of the most interesting things about Derek is he's the only man I know that took an entire year off of work to court his wife. That's true. For true one story. year, he made it his mission to court his wife. Now, did that involve a lot of cooking for her or how yes, did that go? every single day. Every day you yes, cook for it. Every single day. Um, I moved to, to Manhattan, 72nd and Broadway, for a solid, a full calendar year. And just allowed our relationship to, to grow and see where it would go. Because we had met and we were living in two different cities. But um, I cooked every single day in that tiny so little what apartment. Did, what did and and the kitchen for? was in the reach-in closet where you, you pull back the folding collapsing doors <laughs> and there was a little tiny stove. Typical a, Manhattan apartment. Oh, it was, it was awesome. Um, I did mostly uh, salad-based stuff with her because she was sort of vegetarian. Excuse me. And um, so I would do salmon, you know, or ginger chicken and I'd put it on top of a salad and, and put mixed vegetables and all that sort of stuff. Um, then also I did, you know, some Italian stuff, which is really what I learned from my grandfather and great-grandmother. Um, you know, some gravy, which we call sauce in America. Um, but some meat gravy and some seafood gravy and stuff like that. Uh, but we share very similar uh, taste profiles. Um, we like citrus-based, so garlic, 
olive oil, citrus, that sort of uh, base with sautéed onions and then build from there with some sort of a meat, maybe put it over a pasta or uh, put it over a salad, that sort of thing. Um, so that was sort of, that was, that was what I did. It was sort of, and it was fun because we would go to the Whole Foods, which was on the same block. We would get the ingredients for the day, and then I would just sit and cook. And, and honestly, this is very sappy, but you brought it up. You framed it up for me, so I'm going to give you the full, the full experience. But we would listen, um, you know, to some, to some older music and, and older jazz from, like, the 30s, 40s, and I would cook, and then we'd go for a walk in the park, Central Park, which is right there, or we'd go to a little art house movie theater and watch a movie, and it was great. But um, I was going to say, I think one of the keys to masculinity for me is having a balance and not just, there's not one uh, sort of facade of being a man. A man uh, to me, being masculine is about capability. Um, and so preparing food falls into that. And um, my interest in cooking, even though I only do it you know, one or two nights a week now is to try to be a good domestic partner and pull my weight a little, you know? Yeah. So, because one of the things I always say, you know, we talk about skills that men need to have. Yeah. I believe every man should know how to grill a steak. I think that's a basic skill that as a man you have to have because there's, there's nothing worse than someone who doesn't. Well, I, you know, I think it, especially... Steak being one of those things that you're given one of God's greatest creations, your only job is to not screw it up. Yeah. Like, that's that's all cooking a steak is, in my opinion. Yeah, it's not complicated, but there's a large margin for error. Yeah, there is. Especially when you get to the point. Now, of course, meat thermometers have made this a little easier. And I, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to state right there, that's not a cheat. I temp... Everything of I cook. Of course, yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah, you know when we were at the um, when we cooked hamburgers here, and I brought my Blackstone and cooked hamburgers here. I had my little temperature gauge so that I could hit every single hamburger, be sure that the temperature was right. You know, there's yes. Anybody that thinks that you have to hold your hand over it and know when the heat's right, you're wasting <laughs> yeah. your time. You're not divining a, a good steak, right? And also, okay, so it says in this article, every man should have three signature dishes. A breakfast, a side, and an entree. What is your signature breakfast? Biscuits. Biscuits. Oh, that's a good one because biscuits are tough. And I've got the benefit of the fact that my biscuit recipe is handed down to me by my dad. Derek, what's your signature breakfast? Uh, we're not super breakfasty, breakfasty people, but I would say that probably um, like a really fluffy omelet with a good handful of ingredients in it. And I'm all, I'm all about the omelet. The omelet is going to be my signature dish. To me, if you have to use three eggs in your omelet, you're doing it wrong. You should have the control of the egg and the heat to produce the perfect two-egg omelet. Mm-hmm. I wasn't aware that the number of eggs changed the, the, the difficulty oh, level. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, I don't eat eggs. I wish. Mm. I wish I could eat eggs. I want to like eggs. I hate them. And, but... I do cook a mean omelet, so I'm told. Yes, the but omelet. But always with two eggs. I never knew that I could make my life easier by adding an egg to it. Yes, the three-egg <laughs> omelet is kind of a shortcut. 
Okay. But that means that you've not controlled the consistency of your eggs to the point that you can flip the omelet, you know, and make it that perfect half plate size. I, I do think it going back to kind of the, the skillfulness of having a, having a, 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 a what are we talking about? A, a go-to recipe. Staple, signature dish. Signature dish. Thank you. Um, my brain took a hiatus for a second. That cigar is so good. You've got you to be willing to get it wrong every once in a while. Like, I think no matter, a Michelin star chef is still going to make mess up an omelet every once in a while. Like, there's something about you've always got to be just on the edge of perfection, which is failure. Well, and sometimes you do everything right. You know, I made a pork shoulder here Saturday for the football games. I did everything right, and it was not my best work. Yep. Because the the cut of meat. It was the cut of meat on that particular shoulder. Now, everybody loved it, and everybody told me they loved it, and that's awesome. That feels great. But in my heart of hearts, I knew that was not my best piece of barbecue I've ever executed. And I blame it completely on the quality of the piece of meat I picked up that day. My I made a pot roast last night, and that was exactly the same scenario. I just It was fine. It tasted okay, but it, was, it wasn't my best work. So in the essence of moving this forward... Signature, signature side or signature entree? What is it? Uh, come back to me, because I've got come a back couple. To you. What's your signature side or entree? Uh, well, I guess mine would be an entree, and even though I told you I cook a lot of Italian, I think uh, I do this wonderful, and I don't know where I learned the recipe. Uh, my wife and I learned it together, but. Uh, I like to pound out some chicken breast, put it in a Ziploc bag with a little bit of olive oil, some freshly grated garlic and ginger and a little lemon juice, and you marinate that. And you put it in the oven and bake it with half a quartered potatoes in a, in a casserole pan. Uh, and it's, for us... Our favorite dish, ginger chicken, I guess, would be mine. I'm always going to be my buffalo chicken dip. All right. My buffalo chicken dip, since I bought the Instapot and mastered the buffalo chicken dip, that's always a hit when I bring it here, when I take it to family events, when I, when I just make it at home for Glenda and I. Buffalo chicken dip. A good buffalo chicken dip is really hard to beat. I'm going to say mine and... I'll have to make it for you and, and let you be the arbiter since you I'm are in. since you are Italian. But Is it good? I feel like it's going to be from somewhere in uh, Thailand, India. It's meatballs. No, it, it's it's spaghetti and meatballs. It's I I became a fan of meatballs when I was a young early teenager, and from the moment I started to cook, I sought out the perfect meatball recipe, and I couldn't find one, but. What I have since come up with on my own, I, I have gotten rave reviews from everyone who's ever eaten them. Sorry, carry on. I was done. You they sound done. delicious. I'm in. I'd like to try them. I love a good meatball with, a, with like, a, like a pasta. or. I, so if I have the time, I'll do fresh pasta. Oh. I've got the Atlas machine. I love making pasta from scratch. Okay. And it's way easier than you ever realize. But Except I, the gnocchi. That's still not. I've, I've never been bold enough. I've never had the time to try it. Yeah. But, <laughs> um, but yeah. 
Well, it is something that I think everybody should spend a few minutes. It's kind of like knowing how to order a drink when you go to a social situation. You know, I always just order an old-fashioned. Mm-hmm. And um, because I know I can go there and I can just say old-fashioned, they'll say top shelf, middle shelf. And I always tell the bartender, use your judgment. Make me the best old-fashioned you can. All right. And let them put that together in that method. So, yeah, I think it's important. It's a great article on Art of Manliness, which we haven't done one since we relaunched the podcast. No, it was good to get back to that. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. So let's step away for a break a little early. I was just going to say, though, I'm kind of surprised that your signature dish, Shane, didn't involve a chainsaw or something really manly. Like you had to... Well, I didn't give the recipe. Cedar planks and... (laughs) Yeah, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of keeping it easy. I don't okay. know that necessarily working too hard <laughs> makes it better. Yeah, and the the other thing is the buffalo chicken dip. You can put it in a crock pot and it's good for hours. Yeah, and to make because I hate a dish that it's only good for the 22 seconds. You know, I've said in here before, I refuse to surrender to the tyranny of the avocado <laughs> because avocados are only good for about 20 minutes. Yeah, and then they go from too hard to mush. Yeah. So I'm a fan of simplicity. I'm glad. I'm glad you noticed the the yeah. finer detail yeah. there. Just so yet another way that you and I are different. I think your signature dish should have some labor involved in it. No, no, my, no. To, to do my meatballs properly, it takes three hours. Yeah. See, nothing has for a meatball. To to do the sauce and the noodles and the everything. Yeah. Three hours. That's like almost two cigars. I know. That's a reasonable. That's a lot of work. That's we'll what step I love away about for it. a break. When we come back, we're going to talk to Derek about the movie, and we're going to talk about gifts. All right, we'll be back with that more after this. Back to the Cigar Cast. It's one of your hosts, Shane, sitting next to Trey and across from Derek Purvis. And no bump joke. I don't. I didn't have time to prepare two bump jokes today, so Trey, th- you get off easy. I thought you kept like a running list. I was surprised you didn't have one in the chamber. I kind of do, but Derek's here, so I try not to be too mean to you. Fair enough. I try to make Derek think I like you. It's it's a it's a facade that you've curated well over the years. I, I have a reputation to uphold. Yeah. Plus, then I'll think it's fair game, and it, I'll chime in with my own so i don't want to right we don't we don't want to open that door (laughs) so before we get into another topic i we got to talk about the movie making experience Uh because i got to go to the set before you started shooting and i got to go right after you finished shooting i didn't go during shooting and that's and you invited me and entirely my fault i just had a bunch of stuff going on and didn't get to go do i thought for sure when we burnt down the cabin yes and, and set, I've seen the video of the cabin burning, but yeah. I did. I have not got to get. I did not go that day. Yeah. Well, I thought for sure we'd see you, but uh, yeah. So, to give the to give the people listening a scope of what it took to make this movie, how many people did you employ? Uh, about 120, 118, I think exactly, uh, from beginning to end. That's cast and crew. Cast and crew. Yep. Cast and crew. Yep. How many horses? Uh, 30 all told. 30 wow. horses all yep. total. Yeah. And then you had some wolves. I got to meet the wolves the day I went there. Okay. <laughs> and, <I'll>, and, <laughs> and, and, I take, and I take the blame for that once the wolves encountered 
my a, a true alpha male. Uh-huh. Yeah, they, I they knew that's couldn't what do nothing with them from that point <laughs> on. Did you get to use any fall horses? No. Oh, see, that, that's my favorite piece of, of cinema is the fall horse. I, I think they don't get enough credit. Yeah. How do you train a horse to fall? I have no idea, but you there are people. You just start doing it. You, you pull them until they collapse over. Till they fall. That's it. <laughs> now, was this your first movie working with animals? I know you've done a couple yeah. of other movies. None of them seemed real does, animal heavy. Does Jim Carrey count? <laughs> well, w- walking Sorry. with... Uh, that's know. another podcast. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Of this magnitude, absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, there have been, you know, pets and dogs and cats and lizards and things in various movies throughout the year, snakes, but nothing that was centered on, you know, the wild frontier in America and the wilderness and all the creatures that live in the. We had raccoon, we had... Uh, we had vultures, we had rabbits, we had horses, we had kind of wolfy type things. I don't know if they were actually wolves or what they <laughs> so were. So is there one company that handles all the animals, or is there like, we do horses, we do predators, we do varmints? Yep, yeah, it's, um, it's segmented for sure. There are groups that, you know, trainers that have animals and they hire themselves out to film productions, but... Um, how do you make a snake do what you want? Well, that's a good question, and I'm not a snake charmer, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't think. I think it's sort of like the. I think you just hope for the best, yeah. Yeah, it's um, just don't get bit. I think is the number one rule, and then you don't. You don't write any. Yeah, stay away from the sharp end. Yes. You don't write anything <laughs> special into the script that the snake no. has to do. No, he doesn't have any uh, any key tasks that develop storyline. It's just no lines. scary. Well, and then you have, of course, all of the regulations that deal with that. Because I didn't know till we were talking about it the other night. There's a lot of process to getting that little tag at the end that says no animals were harmed in the filming of this movie. That's right. Yeah. Which is important to me because uh, I want to be responsible. You know, I love nature. And um, it's easy for... I know my personality it would be very easy to push boundaries and to make demands of of animals under the pressure of trying to get a shot or an idea that maybe could be handled in a way that I'm not thinking of. And that's really the important thing to me. Now, were paramedics on site at all time? Did you have Multiple. to always have paramedics? Because, yeah. I mean, you got you got guys jumping off of horses and the other guys and well, guys I don't want to ruin too many of the gags, but we had ambulances and fire trucks, too, uh, for various reasons involving... 130-foot sheer cliffs with actors tumbling and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And you had a helicopter. You had to shoot the helicopter off the cliff. And well, that doesn't sound a lot like a Davy Crockett movie now. I think <laughs> we swayed away from the, the Davy well, Crockett. Well, the, the air, I, I just think it's imp- impressive that you had a harness that would lift a horse on a helicopter. That's just amazing to me. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. before Shane gets too carried away... Uh, I've got a question for you about kind of the process, because you mentioned early on that this is historic fiction. Yeah. And I know you wrote it as well. Yep. So did you do a lot of research? Absolutely. And was there anything in your research that you found that you didn't know and you, that yeah, we about have to... About Davy Crockett specifically? Yeah. Um, well, sure. You know, I read his autobiography that he wrote about his life um, as part of that. And there was a lot of things in there that you got to see a little bit of the way he thought of some of those things. But I think what I learned um, and then really tried to make an enjoyable part of the film, the, the most 
I don't know what the right word is, but the uh, not shocking, but the most uh, curious sort of thing that I learned is that of all the legends for Davy Crockett, all the mythology that you hear about him, uh, killing bears and, you know, all that sort of stuff, there seems to be no origin of why we think those things about. There's no, like, actual story of, oh, he was in the wilderness and he was surrounded by 30 bears and so he shot 30 bears in a day. We just have this mythology that he shot 30 bears in a day. So that was an interesting, like, like uh, things of where did he start wearing the raccoon hat and why? Yeah. Um, you know, that he could, at 20 paces, throw a double-sided axe into a tree and then split a musket ball on the axe. And just all these things are like, but where's the story that, confer- that confirms, but that, that originates that idea that we have about him? So it was very interesting that... Um, he, he was an early American folk hero. I mean, yeah. so so much was larger than than the life himself. And I, I think it's great that he actually had the opportunity to write an autobiography. So we do get some of that, you know, beyond what you know, film and story and legend and folklore tell us about him. Yeah, being yeah. a native son of Tennessee, I've always found his story very fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And the movie was shot right here in Tennessee, hundred percent, with all local crew. Yeah, the foothills of the Harpeth River. Yep, Harpeth River uh, and uh, State Park. And then we had a beautiful uh, location that was provided by a wonderful local family. The farm has been in their family line since like the mid-1800s. And they're still working it as a cattle farm. Uh, but it spans the Harpeth River, 70 acres oh, on, wow. on both sides along the Harpeth River. And just beautiful, rugged, pristine I mean, some of these trees on this property have been there, I would argue, since they're massive. They're like, you know, Volkswagen big around. Oh, wow. And just massive trees. So to be able to find that location that was um, accessible to crew and all that sort of stuff from, from Nashville was really instrumental. Was that job one, is securing the location? Well, no. Uh, writing the script was job one. And then <laughs> as, you, as you're leading into production and as you're getting ready to, to spin things up. Uh, yeah. Determining what state you're going to film in is first, probably. Okay. And then inside the state, you start to figure out where can you get those locations. And um, quite frankly, uh, you know, filming in Tennessee has its challenges. Mm-hmm. All very nice people. Um, and, and the crew ended up, you know, doing a, a great job. And as I'm editing it now, uh, I feel very confident that we got a, a good movie. Um, but it would have been far more advantageous financially for to, me to bring this film to, say, Georgia or Louisiana. And Georgia, geographically, would match right. Tennessee in the northwest part of Georgia. So, um, But I felt like it was important that Davy Crockett's story be told in his home territory. It was a big part of his identity, um, you know, obviously up until he left for the Alamo, but uh, he's a Tennessean and that story needs to be told here. And so we had to fight through some additional challenges, which, by the way, every film is riddled with challenges, which attracts me to produce them is the puzzle, the challenge and, and figuring out ways to overcome them and provide solutions. If you just showed up and everything went right, A, it wouldn't be as much fun, and B, everyone would do it. No, no, it would be fun. No, no, back at all. (laughs) As a guy who's just finishing his 19th film now, uh, it would be fun. (laughs) I would love one that just went according to plan. 
because most because two thirds of the work is in the preparation period right before you turn on a camera. So, in hindsight, could you have picked a harder time of the year to film a movie in Tennessee? Yes. Would there because it seemed like you filmed. The leaves are falling. The yeah. weather's changing. It's yeah. 70 degrees and sunny one day. It's 32 degrees. degrees. For a week, it was 20 degrees. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I think that the the spring flooding and mud would have made it a lot worse. And blossoming and budding is a lot harder to work around, I think, than, than some leaves leading to kind of no leaves, which is what we ended up having. Yeah, when we were talking the other day, he talked about having to use the rain machine. And I'm like, well, it rained yesterday. Why did you have to use a rain machine? Because it doesn't look like movie rain. It's, it's got to look like rain. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's just it's fascinating. So as we move forward, though, I want to talk about you having cigars. Yes. And all. you're a regular cigar smoker like the rest of us and enjoy it. How How hard was that to coordinate with... 120 people on the set and doing things. Well, there was a golden era in the beginning of this film where I was like an old, you know, film ma- maverick that just had a cigar in my mouth and we went out into the wilderness and we shot this cool movie and then it all kind of came to a screeching halt. Uh, um, and so then I had to, you know, make a, a place off the set a little bit and, and go there at prescribed times and smoke but for a couple of weeks I was directing from atop a horse with a cigar in my mouth a classic frontier Davy Crockett tale and it was the best two weeks that had to feel ethereal yeah it was it was awesome just directing from atop the horse I so they have these cool handheld monitors now that have all like the digital display and um, to be able to be in the the headset and be on top of the horse and work with my actors and, and work with my camera crew and work with my art department and my hair and makeup from atop the horse with a big, you know, can I say a brand? Yeah, we can say anything here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Liga Privada just hanging out, which is awesome. Were there any cigars in the film? No. Nope. No Sin products. It's meant for kids. Yeah. I was, yeah. I was thinking the rating probably yeah. dictated that. Well, and also, you know, I don't smoke around my kids. That's a choice they'll make when they get older. Um, not that I'm ashamed of smoking. I just, you know, kids are so impressionable. And and to make something that is definitely a lifestyle choice sort of seem cool, I think I'll avoid that on this one. This is just, we talked about that a little bit on the show that we did. Yeah, we touched about that on the previous show. So did you get to finish any of the cigars you started during filming? All of them. You finished all of them. Okay. I do not start a cigar I'm not going to finish. That's just the way I live my life. So There's nothing worse than starting a cigar with a hard stop. Yeah, no, not happening. They, I, I made production wait a, a time or two, so I, 10 minutes or so, finish up my cigar, and then I would come on set. But um, Nope, I, I finished all of them. And it was mostly uh, Liga Pravadas. I, I had sometimes the little Papas Fritas ones, too, and so they were just quick 20-minute, you know, 30-minute smokes. So... The one of the fascinating things when I went there was the leather workers actually uh-huh. doing the leather work on set. So when they're done with all of the leather working, yeah, do they put that in the truck and take it with them so that they can do it on the next? Do you have it in a warehouse? Is it in your garage? What? How does that? It actually work? currently is in my garage, um, and will be put into a storage facility in 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 the event that we do more. Yeah, and archived. Yeah. 
Is there is there a company that does that, or is that just something that you kind of have well, to I'm handle? I'm sure there is, but we just had um, an individual who was a talented leathersmith, and or I'm not sure that's even the right term. I think there's a different term for a leather, yeah, I think it's leather worker. A leather worker. Okay, great. Uh, but he was he was fantastic. He made Davy Crockett's saddle, um, which had a very unique and fun look, and and um, many other. Uh, pieces of wardrobe, you know, things to hang tomahawks and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Well, and like the week before, you had a colt born there at yes. the farm. I get there, and there's a brand-new baby colt. Looks like, you know, a baby colt looks like a five-gallon bucket with legs. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was uh, the horse wranglers. Uh, apparently, um, they ended up sort of naming it, and I think it'll be it'll be in the credits, so I'll leave it as a surprise. But they ended up naming it apropos to the filming of the this movie. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's very cool. It's really, it's interesting. The whole process just fascinated me, seeing you kind of go through it. And what, what was your average work day? As far as time? Yeah. Uh, 4.30 to 7.38. Well, I know you. I know you kind of made the budget for the cigar shop here. Yes. Well, and I'll, how many cigars would you estimate you bought during the production of this movie? Well, when I give you the answer, you have to keep in mind that a good half dozen of the people who worked for me also smoked cigars, and so they took two or three cigars a day. Yeah. From that, but uh, I probably bought three or four hundred cigars. I oh wow! Say. How long was the shoot? Five weeks. Okay. Yeah, five weeks. But, I, but again, there was five or six people that yeah. were smoking multiple, not just me. And I, I'm a two, three cigar kind of guy a day, sometimes four or five if it's a, a day where I desire it. Well, and that's one of the things, you know, I, I don't count the Papa's Fritas as an entire cigar. Okay, think, fair enough. I think two Papa's Fritas is one entire cigar. I think so. Oh, okay, I'm off the hook. Yeah. I, I think that's a fair, fair judgment to make. So. Yeah. All right, let's talk about the holiday gift guide from officiant, from Cigar Aficionado. Oh, you shouldn't have. <laughs> <laughs> well, we talk about... So they, they put out a gift guide every year, and we pretty much bring it up on the show just to make fun of it. You know... <laughs> it, sort of it, like my movie. Okay, thank well, you. Well, the thing is, you know, Cigar Aficionado targets a specific demographic. And so most of the things on this list are over $300. Which is out of range for most people. And some of it goes really crazy. Some of it is just plain stupid. And it's just, it's fun, it's fun to, to look at the things that they think. And oftentimes, what will end up happening is we'll look at something and go, that's not it, but, you know, this. Interesting. Okay. So the first one that we're not going to talk about everyone on the list. We're just going to kind of hit the high points. Watch the ball drop in New York City is actually on this list. And I, so they talk about how you can get, you know, ho- hotels offer special suites that overlook Times Square and, and you know, rooftop bars and things like that. And, and anywhere from 330 bucks to about 1100 And I just think there's such a small fraction of you could not pay me to go to New York City for New Year's Eve I just because even if I had a private rooftop bar area you still have to get there and you have to just you have to deal with the metal detectors now that they have and the perimeter they set up and all the just elbow to elbow people it just does not sound fun to me no not not even a little 
the worst one, I believe, on this list. Well, I'll say this is second worst. We'll get to the worst one. The John Wayne official cocktail book. So isn't that just like a flask that he had kind of in his little leather vest? And it was a <laughs> well, see, this is that's kind of the issue I have with this, which is they've clearly taken, you know, just recipe guides of classic cocktails and they've just put his name on it to, to sell copies. And I guarantee you Boston's, which is the gold standard cocktail recipe book, is better. And it's just, I wonder, who's getting the money for this? Like, they're putting his name. Do you still have to license John Wayne's name these days? Well, it's Life Plus 70 before it's public domain. I don't know exactly. So probably they licensed it, yeah. Probably still licensing it. But yeah, something like this. If somebody gave me this, I would assume they didn't know me at all. <laughs> yes. One, I'm not a big drinker. But two, I, I don't know. I just, I, I don't know why anyone would buy the John Wayne cocktail book. So it's if there's like, a cocktail in there called The Quiet Man, what do you think it is? I'd have to be like Guinness and Jameson. Right. Like on a milk. <laughs> <laughs> at all. Because that's the other thing is that they're going to create names for existing cocktails. You're going to go to the bar and you're going to ask for the true grit and they're not going to have a clue what you want. Oh, here's a white Russian. Right. <laughs> Happy Island Forges Artisanal Knives. Now, you and I disagree on knives. This is the only thing on this list that I agree with. And it's a this particular brand I'm not necessarily in love with, but it says they range in price from $150 to $450. If you care about cooking, and we clearly all do, we talked about it at the beginning of the show, I think you owe it to yourself to have a knife in your drawer that costs more than $100. It truly does make a difference. I do not disagree with you. However, I will say this. If you've got someone in your life that you know loves to cook, and they they don't have a knife already, then they're probably not the you know foodie that you think they are. Yeah, no. It, Especially I, if it's a $100 John Wayne brand or whatever this is. It, it, it is difficult because a knife, it, it's a bit like that scene in Harry Potter where the, the wand chooses the wizard. Like, mm-hmm. they're, <laughs> they're so, like, you go to Williams-Sonoma and you're, <laughs> not, not that knife, thank you. Um, the, no, because the, like, for instance, my favorite knife is uh, Shun by Ken Onion. $150 chef's knife. And the reason I like it... Stainless handle? Uh, it's a wood handle. Yeah. But it's slightly tapered on one side. And being left-handed, it really sits in my hand well. And so I, I do think it's a difficult gift because if someone really does care about the knives they use, it may be... It, what? No, well, I just had a thought. Sorry. Oh. <laughs> I just had this thought of, like, uh, someone spitting out some food, like, this was made by a left-handed man. <laughs> it's terrible. Well, it's a, it's a good ideal to have a good knife. It's a bad ideal to give someone a knife as a gift yeah. for, for cooking. Because then they feel kind of obligated to use it. And what if it doesn't fit their hand well? It, it's, there, are some, there are some considerations, like a paring knife or a small chef's knife with a standard handle like this one has is pretty universal. And it's not going to be, it, 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 it's not going to be offensive to their hand. It may not be the best fit, but if they don't already know what they're missing, it's a great entry into it. See, I don't have expensive knives for cooking. 
I have expensive knives for cleaning deer and things like that. But I don't really have expensive knives for cooking. I just keep the ones I have very sharp. Well, so that's the thing. You are in a unique position where you actually have... I would say you're probably in the top 5% of people on the planet in terms of skill sharpening a knife. Thank you. I, I thought you'd appreciate that. Very flattering. And so, so my electric machine doesn't qualify me? No, it does not. Okay. No, you're just peeling steel. Yeah. So it's sharper, though. I think you I can, can get away in. with a cheaper knife, a stamped blade as opposed to a forge blade, things like that, because you're more adept at keeping a, an edge on them, whereas that's what you pay for in the knife is a, is a knife that will cut an edge. Because... Because the thing is, a, a, a very, very sharp knife is much safer than a dull knife. Now, this next one, I think, is a good gift to give, but it's not a great item. 10,000 Villages bike chain wine rack. I've got a brother-in-law that everything you say to him, he ties into bicycling or cycling at some point. And i got a podcast co-host like that, too. And <laughs> just... Which is funny, because I don't agree with this. I think... It, this this falls into that category of where you have, you know, hobby where, where maybe you're difficult to buy for, or people just don't know you that well, but they know one thing. So, oh, this has a bike chain on it. You like to bike. You must like this. Now, take apart the or take away the fact that I don't drink. But even back in the day, when I did, it's it's fine. It's kind of ugly. It is. It's very steampunk. Yeah, kind of hideous. Yeah, I but, think the problem with these lists is that we live in an era where everyone basically has everything they want anyway. Like, can you can you name something that you would need in your life that you don't have? Like, we don't live in that era where it's like, I wish I had I could afford a really good chef knife. I remember growing up when that was like a real thing. Or Yeah, this, the stuff in my life that I don't have that I would like to have is not something that's in a budget range that I would feel comfortable somebody giving it to me. Oh, I thought for sure he was about to list them. Right. The things that I don't have but would like to have are... Well, like, the greatest Christmas gift ever for me, and I'm sure somebody will get one for me, would be the Andre the Giant as the Bigfoot from the $6 million man (laughs) action figure. Yeah. But that's, you know, a good one of those is going to be a couple hundred dollars. Well, you know, it's well worth every penny. That's kind of hard to get. Hey, Derek, I know you'd like to break, get me something nice for Christmas. Just if you were looking for ideas. If you're looking for it's ideas, a specific. rare toy store somewhere. I'm shocked I didn't make it onto this, uh, onto this list. It, it is one of those weird things where like, there's a, there's a remarkably narrow window between the dollar amount of a gift that you're willing to accept and the dollar amount over which you're not willing to buy it for yourself. Yeah, like, that's, it's a razor-thin window. Yeah. Yeah, the ideal situation is someone gives you a gift card and you say, oh, okay, now that $300 action figure, they gave me a gift card for 100 bucks, so now it's only costing me $200. I can justify... Exactly. I can justify the purchase of that. Okay, I hate the next one. I hate Japanese steaks, Wagyu beef. Why? I don't want people giving me food for Christmas. Well, I mean, I, I get that. Uh, for me, it's slightly different. I just don't... I, I think Wagyu beef is incredible. Yeah, me too. But for well, You what, have to cook it exactly correct, though. It's hard to... Exactly. For what you pay for it, I th- going back to our thing about grilling steaks earlier, your only job is to not screw it up. A choice steak from Costco done well, com- price, you know, dollar per pound, I, I'd rather have the Costco steak 
than the Wagyu in most mm. cases. And I would never get for one of my golf buddies the Bushnell Ion GPS rangefinder watch. <laughs> this this falls into that that uh, cigar aficionado trope for me of paying advertising dollars because if you're looking for a GPS watch, it's Garmin all the way. I don't care what sport, what use case it is, you've got to go Garmin. So clearly, Bushnell paid more to be on this list than the Garmin fact that you have an to. opinion about that makes it a little snooty. You're a little snooty now to me. Well, I'm a triathlete. So, like, you live and die by your GPS watch at that point. I thought it was a GPS to, like, find the golf ball or something. <laughs> no, now, this, that I'd be all for. This one's... Lord knows I spend more time in the woods <laughs> than yeah. I do on the fairway. The thing is, I dislike playing golf with the guy that has to range find every hole. By the time you've played your third round of golf... You should have a pretty good grasp of, okay, I'm halfway between the 150-yard marker and the green. It's 75 yards. Right. I'm two-thirds of the way. It's 85 yards. You know, I, I just don't think you should your, your I think average, you should eyeball it. Your average golfer doesn't need to know the difference between a 69-yard pin location and a 72-yard pin location. Yeah, and I think that that's not secret information either. I think the golf courses make it pretty obvious yeah. how long their holes are, and you can... But every golfer, every fisherman, every cyclist has a closet full of junk that somebody got them <laughs> mm-hmm. because they thought that would be a great. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you need a little set of skis, water skis for your crickets yeah. while you're fishing. <laughs> How many divot replacement tools that hold a cigar do you have? Okay, now this one, you tell me about the brazier. What? what? Barsour? <laughs> Barsour. Oh. Oh, okay, different. T- tea and coffee alarm clock. Different pronunciation. Now, it's $312. Not bad. I, I will admit on the show, I paid about that much for my coffee maker. It's, yeah, it's a stupid amount to pay for a coffee maker when you can get a Mr. Coffee from Walmart for $12. But the, thing I, the problem I have with using as alarm clock, so I have mine set with one of the um, Alexa-enabled plugs. And so it comes on at... I set it every night. It comes on at 6 a.m. So when I wake up, my coffee is ready. And that's the way I want to live my life. I want to wake up to coffee. The hardest part about that, though, is when I have to make coffee and I'm already that much tired and I'm ready to go to bed and I just want to crawl in bed and then you open the canister of coffee to make it for the next morning and I'm awake. Uh-huh. And now all I can, and you want a cup of coffee? Yeah, and I want a cup of coffee because I I drink coffee until you know seven o'clock at night. In fact, I just finished. A oh cup. Lord, I would never sleep if I drank coffee at seven o'clock at night. Yeah, and you know, and so sleeping with freshly ground coffee grounds just a aromatic, aromatic right <laughs> next to my face just seems like the worst uh-huh. way to sleep ever. This is to me the worst one on this list. Okay, good. The Cowboy Cauldron, the Urban Cowboy, $1,999. Forgive me, but what is, what is it? What's a cauldron? It's a... It's a fire pit. It's a, yeah, it sits on, it's a cauldron that sits on a tripod that you hang over the fire to make your beaver stew no, or whatever you happen to be You're cooking. missing it. It's even stupider than that. You build the fire in the cauldron. Oh, the fire is the in the cauldron. The fire is like a little in backyard. the cauldron fakey fire thing yes so you can't like 
put your chicken soup in it and make it no, in this? No, it's although I, you could make chicken soup for a whole platoon with the size of that thing. No, it's got a grill grate that grows goes on top of it. So you can use it to grill but or as a just a fire pit. But yeah, you build the fire in it. You don't even put it over the fire. I think a good welder could make one of these for under $200. Well, and throw even in eat. a case of Natty Light, and you. Oh got yeah, it. <laughs> even more accessible to the common guy like me is I could probably go to Home Depot and get some nice field stone and you know build something in my backyard for a few hundred dollars. Absolutely, yeah. I'll have a nice Saturday project come over with something nice. I it's would, very cumbersome looking too; like it might tip over. I would hate to have kids around that thing. Yeah, it looks heavy. Yeah, it looks massive. It looks heavy to set up and everything. The other one is. And now we're coming back to cigars. The Gerstner Aficionado Travel Bar. Okay, that geeks me out a little because I love, I don't know why, but ever since I was a kid, I like wooden boxes. I like, I like cigar boxes every once in a while I came into, but cedar boxes. I don't know why, but I love that kind of like drawers. And But you bring that over to somebody's house. Merry Christmas. And all you're telling them is not only do I think your liquor selection is shit, <laughs> but I also don't think you possess the proper tools to be able to make a cocktail with what you have. Okay. Like, you're not organized enough. Yeah. That's a, that's a, like the fact that it's, you know, for a travel bar is what surprises, is, is what I think is so, <laughs> Who's so like egregious about that. Like, yeah. Yeah. Unless can't you're. Can't home without it. Well, unless you're on safari in Africa. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, if you're spending more than three days consecutively in a canvas tent, okay, I'll, I'll let you have it. We'll, we'll allow you to carry the travel bar here. It seems like the people you could you know in your life that would need something like that is probably pretty small. But could What's you, the price point on it, though? $1,195. I don't need to be organized Does it come with any alcohol or just the tools? I think that's just the box to hold the alcohol. And how many tools could you actually need? Like a strainer and a... a stir. Stir. A couple a, of glasses. Right? I mean... But, yeah, I'm just... This is one of those things that looks cool, but what's the practical use for this? I mean, could you imagine somebody Clutter. coming in here and whipping out their portable <laughs> cigar bar and <laughs> opening it up and going through the... They wouldn't last long with this no. crew. <laughs> I can tell you that. Yeah, I, just, I can't imagine what possesses people to need this particular item. Yeah. But, you know, we cover it every year when we talk about what are the gifts for the cigar smoker. A coupon for two hours away from the house, no questions asked. Go to the shop. Just get out of here. Don't, yeah. wor- don't worry about us. Just go. Relax. Yeah. yeah. The worst gift you can get a cigar smoker is cigars. Because they're going to go buy the cigars they want. Either if you feel like you need to get that, just go with the gift card route. Every cigar shop sells them. Go get a gift card for 100 bucks to a cigar lounge of their choice. Now we just sound, even though it's not true, but we just sound like three bachelors now. Like, I don't know, this gift card, I couldn't think of anything for you. There's got to be something. What about one of those trips to, like, tour the factory or something? I'm glad you said that because there's one thing on this list that I actually... Could you imagine if we prepped this show with our guests? That would be awesome. So it 
tickets to the Big Smoke Meets Whiskey Fest, Saturday, March 4th, 2023. It's on this list, and I think that's great. That sounds very cool. You know, if you, you know, cigars and whiskey go hand in hand for most people, and I think this is great. That's like, you know, tickets start at three fifty. It's Reasonable in- for that size. That's like a significant. Yeah. I dig you gift. Without yeah, being. It's in Hollywood, Florida, so it's in Central Florida in March. The weather's going to be great. Yeah. And I, I think that's the kind of thing that, that really works. I, and I actually do, we've talked about it pretty much every year we've been doing this show around this time. And I've, in the past, agreed with you that cigars are the worst gift for a cigar smoker. But I don't, necessar- I don't necessarily think that I agree with that anymore. However, I will add the caveat. If you are a cigar smoker, you can give another cigar smoker cigars as a, as a gift. Because you know... That I'm not spending Padron money. If there was a cigar in that humidor that you thought I owed it to myself to smoke, but you knew that a price point at $23, I was never going to grab it, I think that's a I think that's a good gift. Yes, it's just it's such a margin for error in there. It's kind of like lighters and cutters. Mm-hmm. A person's cutter is a very very particular yep. item. That's right. So getting somebody a cutter that now they're obliged. But now I will say, if you're going to buy the cigar lover in your life a gift and you want it to be a cutter, V-cut. Calibri, V-cut all the way. $49. Is it still $49? Yeah, still $49. It's the most idiot-proof cutter on the market. Perfect for me. And it's, well, and it's a great cutter. In addition to just being idiot-proof in terms of delivering consistent results, it it delivers superior draw and just fantastic construction all the way around. Well, I don't want to let the cat out of the bag, but I, Shane, I already know what I'm getting you for Christmas because your cigar, my cigar smoker gift to you is going to be matching white gloves and an ascot. Okay, I can deal with that. Every good, every good cigar smoker needs to have the the cotton glove ascot combo to wear. I was gonna do, I was gonna do the that'll go well jacket. with the that'll go well with the dicky I'm getting him. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Who's that guy dressed like Fred from Scooby Doo sitting in the back smoking the cigar? <laughs> Why don't y'all just get it in blue and orange for? <laughs> well. It's gift giving is tough. Gift giving is one of those things that it's fun when it's done right. But how many times have you got a gift and just said, "Wow, this person doesn't know me at all?" Almost every time, and it's so much work. That's my main thing. It's like it's so much work, not just to think of the thing, but then to find it and to find the right one. It's like it's a lot of work. But but I encourage the practice. There is nothing better than when you get it right, though. Yes. Like, in the last couple of years, in fact, what I'm getting my sister for Christmas this year, I know is going to be a home run. It's a hit. And I got my stepmother a gift for Christmas, I think, two years ago, that is still one of her favorite gifts she's ever gotten. And so there's nothing better than that, because I like to give gifts more than I like to receive them. And there's nothing better than when you just hit it out of the park. Yeah. When you get it right, you know it. Yeah. So, wrapping up the show, Derek, what do you think of the Emperor series? I'm going to be honest with you and tell you that it's a very good smoke. Um, I'm sort of easy to please, so I'm not aficionados like you guys, and and so you're 
audience should take it with a grain of salt. Uh, I'm not super particular, but um, it's very high quality. It smokes very good. It's very consistent. One of the things that, for me, and I think you guys probably enjoy it more than I do, but I hate a cigar. Not hate, but I don't enjoy as much a cigar that changes the flavor profile as you go through it. I kind of like to know what it is and to deliver it all the way through, and this one does that. It's all good. Right. What do you think of the Perdomo? It's it's a five all day. In, in fact, I'm tempted to call it a five and a half. It's just, it's I have not smoked one of these in years, and I forgot what I was missing. Perdomo does that. I think we kind of take them for granted because yep. they're so accessible. Yeah. Sometimes we take Perdomo for granted. The Pinalero is amazing. It's exactly what I needed. I wish it was a little bigger. I'd like it in a Solomon instead of a Figurado. Mm-hmm. But absolutely six six all day long. Yeah. You know what else is amazing? You guys. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are awesome. The show's fun. Uh, I like to learn little tips and tricks. And uh, Well, wait till the check clears next time. Oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> what are you trying to say? This one's going to... Don't drop this one? Yeah, might. don't drop it. Well, I felt a little bad because I thought you were going to be editing the movie, you know, in here on your laptop. What kind of movie do you think I'm making? Well, I, I just, I've seen you in here doing stuff on your laptop before, and yeah, I assumed right. with modern technology, yeah. but I didn't know you were going to be in Nashville and doing all that. So when I invited you to the show today, and you said, well, I'm in Nashville, I'm like, oh, man. So I actually had yeah. to send a follow-up text. Hey, if you don't want to come, it's all right, but I appreciate you taking the time to come no, to no, the show No, no, you can't get off us. the hook. Once you got me on there, that was it. <laughs> I was definitely coming. <laughs> well, I really appreciate it. I've had a blast. Um, it, it, but until next week, you can find us on Facebook.com slash The Cigarcast, Instagram and Twitter at The Cigarcast, and email info at TheCigarCast.com. So you said until next week. Now you've threw off my whole outro. Well, I just, yeah, well. You, you jumped the gun. I thought you were going, you just totally messed up. <laughs> well, that's The Cigarcast for this week. Until next week, have a good cigar and think well of us. Yeah.